0: reading yesterday in Isaiah 40 pictures God a ways off, on his way to save his people. Isaiah 52 and 53 show us the climactic moment where God arrives to save Israel. But what's even more shocking than God's salvation is how he accomplishes that salvation. The first two verses of Isaiah 52 are like Christmas morning. We have that double imperative, wake up, wake up. Israel's told to get up, make themselves look pretty, put on your best clothes, shake off the dust of mourning and shame, take off those chains of slavery. God is here. The foreign nations, they're no longer going to invade, and Jerusalem is once again called the holy city by God. In verses 4 and 5, God says, At first, my people went down to Egypt to reside there, then Assyria oppressed them without cause. So now, what have I here, this is the Lord's declaration, that my people are taken away for nothing? Its rulers well, this is the Lord's declaration, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. God quickly recounts two of Israel's most devastating episodes in their history. They were slaves in Egypt under the power of a genocidal pharaoh. Assyria invaded and nearly swept away the entire nation until God destroyed them in a single evening. And now, what do we have here, God says? Another tragedy? Another nation thinking it can take my people away from me? The rulers of Israel blasphemed God's name saying he was unable to save. But this isn't God's first rodeo. Verse 6: Therefore my people will know my name. Therefore they will know on that day that I am he who says, "Here I am." God's name is being blasphemed. So he's going to remind the world of what his name is. This goes back to God revealing his name in the book of Exodus. He speaks to Moses and says, "I will be who I will be." That is, you're going to see who God is. You're going to understand his name through his judgment on Egypt and the salvation of Israel. He reveals his name even further in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequence of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. God is going to remind the world that he's the God of the Exodus. And he's doing something like that again with Israel in Babylon. He's reminding us that he's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and faithful to his people. And when he brings Israel outside of Babylon, It's going to prove to the world that this is who God is. Isaiah 52, 7-12 is the celebration of Israel. The messengers bring news of God's return. The watchmen announce his coming with shouts of joy. And everyone is about to see the strong arm of the Lord as he leads his people safely out from their enemies. But as God gets nearer, the celebration turns into a stunned silence. Isaiah 52, verse 13. See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of them, for they will see what had not been told them, and they will understand what they had not heard. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? God is sending his salvation through a servant. And when people see him, they're going to be appalled. He's disfigured. He hardly looks human. And the kings and the nations are going to be shocked into silence. God said in Isaiah 52 verse 10 that he is going to display his holy arm. But Isaiah 53 reveals God's holy arm, his means of salvation to be a rejected and suffering servant. He's not impressive looking. He's not especially handsome. He's not even average looking. And most people are going to end up rejecting him because this servant is going to suffer so much that people are going to just consider him cursed by God. But Isaiah tells us that all the suffering that this one endures isn't going to be for his sin. In verse 5 of Isaiah 53, we're told that he was pierced because of our rebellion crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Isaiah tells us of God saving his people in a way that nobody expected and that nobody really wanted. Instead of a great show of power like the plagues of Egypt, we have this servant who's going to die for the sake of the nation and be buried with the wicked. And here we are, and as we examine this passage, we realize that this could only be fulfilled by one person. Jesus the Christ. Rather than saving Israel with fanfare and applause, he's rejected by his people. Through his suffering and death on the cross, he was considered cursed by God, but Isaiah tells us how we ought to view his death. In Isaiah 53, the last two verses, 11 and 12, after his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. His death wasn't a curse from God. It was a sacrificial death that justified us. It was Jesus interceding for us in our rebellion so that we could be with God. So we see that when Isaiah is writing this prophecy... He has something much bigger in mind than Israel's deliverance from Babylon. He wrote of God's servant freeing us from the power of sin itself. The mighty arm of God isn't God's power to crush. It's his power to love. To love the most unlovable people, even to the point of dying on the cross.